We are going to begin our three-part series on the sanctuary today. And um, a lot to cover, so we're going to get right into it. Um, our scripture reading was already read. It's from Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, Designed for Eternity. Designed for Eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for being better to us than we are to ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for going to Calvary. As we turn now, Lord, to study your word, I ask that you once again just make me a nail upon a wall. Upon that nail now, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace, especially as we study this very important topic. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to give the first message a bit of an overview and, um, and start the discussion around the sanctuary. Um, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 24. The Bible says, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. To give you some context, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They had been brutalized and beaten. They'd also been very strongly indoctrinated in the ways of Egypt. The way that the Egyptians worshipped, the way that they saw God, or in the case of the Egyptians, uh, the, 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 the set of gods that they worshipped, all of this had now been ingrained in the minds of God's people. God was now having to do the work through Moses and Aaron of, un, of having his people unlearn what they learned in Egypt. This is where we find ourselves, where Moses now has gone up on top of Mount Sinai and a cloud covers the mount. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 1, the scripture says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, as he was up in this mount, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, shall ye take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. When Moses went up into the mountain, he was given the instruction to make a place for God to dwell with his people. God, one of the interesting things is God says, 
only take what people are willing to give. In other words, you're not to force anyone. It should not be compulsory that they give anything. And all of what we just read are all parts of what would be made to build the sanctuary. It was a fine uh, uh, um, uh, a structure that was going to be made, one of the most ex exquisite in all of history. And yet it was supposed to be portable. They had to be able to walk with it as they had not yet rested in the promised land. God gave Moses the direct instruction, as we shall see, and the people responded by giving. And here in Exodus 25 and verse 9, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. This is incredible. God gives Moses the exact blueprint of how to make this sanctuary. In fact, much of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are dedicated, as well as the book of Hebrew, to the, to the description, the study, the purpose of the sanctuary. It makes sense that there's something special about this message, of the sanctuary message, that we should all as Christians understand. In fact, it is a unique um, doctrine in many ways to the Seventh-day Adventist church, that we have studied this and understand, because in it, are some very important secrets. In fact, in Exodus 25 and verse 40, God gives, uh, says this, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. There was a pattern. And when we get to the book of Hebrews a little later on, what we're going to find is that Moses was tasked with replicating on earth a structure that exists in heaven. And once you understand that, you start, the, 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 the sanctuary on earth begins to take a, a more significant role. You begin to understand that if I can understand the sanctuary, I will better understand God's plan of salvation. You'll better understand how he sees sin. You'll better understand the sacrifice that Christ made when he went to Calvary. But let's go back. The children of Israel are in a pickle. They have come out of Egypt. This is what places of worship look like for them. This is a 3D uh, re-rendering uh, of what one of this is, I think, the, the temple to, um, to Isis would have looked like. And you can see it was very colorful. Um, the Egyptians were phenomenal architects and builders. Of course, they had slave labor to help them to build all of this. So interestingly enough, many of the children of Israel probably participated in building many of the very temples God now wanted them to forget. There would have been all kinds of hieroglyphics on the sides and writings, stories being told um, on, on the sides of these things. And as they come out of Egypt, they are now going to learn from God a new way. One of the most uh, fascinating things about the sanctuary is that it literally is um, a three-dimensional participatory lesson book. As you go through it, it teaches every step teaches every um a festival kept there is a is teaching and so the children of israel were put in a situation where they weren't just handed a book and say read and learn they were actually actively involved in the learning process by understanding the sanctuary when moses was up in the mount god appeared there to the children of israel 
he appeared as a devouring fire. But to Moses, he was just a cloud. God began to reveal himself to them because their idea of God had already been distorted. And I want to make some parallels to modern times. They had a distorted idea of God. Why? Because in the um, Egyptian pantheon of gods, what you see as you look at this is many of them are half human, half animal. You see that? What Satan did in Egypt and was doing in most of the world is actually quite profound. What he did was he brought man down, he brought God down to man's level. Don't miss this. He brought God down to man's level. So they were worshiping beings that were more dishonest, more crooked, more, um, more uh, hateful and jealous, more uh, vindictive than they were. And then he, instead of having them, uh, Satan did not want anyone focusing on the creator, he had them worship the created. And so he blends them with animals. And you can see, um, I was reading some of these, some of these uh, blends. One of them has the head of a... Um, of a, of a, of a, um, uh, uh, one of the, the dogs of, of Africa, um, and, and, and it was because that animal would be seen going in and, and eating um, from out of graves. So if the graves were planted, were shallow, this kind of dog would go and eat. And so, they, so in order to protect yourself from going to death, they took the head of that dog and put it on a person, and that god became the god of death and hell. This superstition created in the minds of the children of Israel a very distorted picture of God. And of course, here's some, they still, and here's the, the crazy thing. I have, I have friends and, and even some people very close to me who have gone back to this way of worship that are now into Egyptology, all in the name of blackness and, and culture. These gods have not been completely forgotten. They're back. And people are, are, are looking at them. But I want to submit to you that one of the reasons we must understand the sanctuary is so that we get the right view of God. Because even in our day, God is still being distorted. Just this week, they said they found another skull. I forget where in the, where in the world they said they found it. And they said they found, where? In China. And they said, listen, this is a new species of human being. And what they say is, well, you know, they're trying to find the missing link to connect the dots back to um, how we evolved from um, monkeys and apes and really from single-celled organisms way back in the day. In other words, like the ancient Egyptians, but with a different twist, you literally were created by things that are less than you. To turn your attention away from God, that's what evolution does. They're very sophisticated. You find a random skull. In fact, many of these things that they've put together, they find one or two little pieces of bone, and then they try and construct a whole race of people out of it. Satan wants to distort how God is seen. He works tirelessly. It's not just this. We live in a time when people, I, I was going to put a slide here that, where they, they quote, I think, um, I won't say who, uh, which writer it is, but he quote the writer saying, um, uh, God is the universe and I am God, therefore I am the universe. You're not the universe. You can fit in a closet. 
King Universe can't fit in the closet. But people want to be elevated. You see what happens? Now you start to bring God down. You know, you hear more and more people say, the divinity in me or the divine presence in me. More and more people are beginning to not even worship the created. They are beginning to worship themselves. Those are the, that, that is the time we live in. When the only right and wrong that exists in the world is, if I, is, is what I decide it to be. The children of Israel had come out of a society like that and God had to work tirelessly through, through the, the teachings of the sanctuary to bring back their minds to him, to remove from off of their eyes the blinders that being in such a hedonistic, heathen, pagan society had given them. And I submit to you, one of the reasons it's important for us to study the sanctuary today is because we are in a very similar situation. The talk I did last night for um, uh, one of the Ghanaian churches was a talk on why youth leave the church. It was fascinating as I was doing the research for it. People give all kinds of reasons as to why young people leave the church. But it was interesting. It was the Huffington Post News, which is a pretty left-leaning uh, news source, that actually put out an article that said, if you really want to know why young people leave the church, it can be found in one word, parents. The study showed that if your parents stay in church, the young person is 80-something percent likely to stay in church. If your parents either never give you church information or, never, or, or leave the church themselves or are not very spiritual, it's like 1% will stay in church into their mid-20s or late 20s. Isn't that profound? And part of that is because our children are getting information from so many different angles. We're being bombarded with information. Uh, the internet is teaching our young people, our children, things that 50 years ago you would have to wait till you were in a college to be exposed to. So we need to teach those things that give back the right uh, um, uh, ideas and perspectives about God. In Exodus chapter 24, to start the whole thing off, in verse 9, it says that Moses went up, but he didn't go up alone. He went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. The Bible says in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. God was trying to show them who he was. And there was under his feet, I love this, watch this church, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. The scripture says that they saw God. Now, they had, they, they, I can tell you that in Egypt, they probably saw some pretty crazy supernatural things. Do you remember when Moses gets to Pharaoh, and they take Aaron's rod, and they throw it down, what happens? Turns into a snake. What did the magicians in Egypt do? They didn't even flinch. If somebody walked in there and threw down a stick and it turned to a snake, this room would probably clear out. But they didn't flinch because the supernatural was normal in Egypt. So when God has to show himself again, God is not just going to show himself by doing great wonders and acts. He's got to show uh, and, and make a connection. And the first time he shows himself here, the scripture says that under his feet as were, as it were, 
a paved work of sapphire, of a sapphire stone. It was like when God was there and they looked up, they could see that the, the, there was something different about the sky, so much so that it says it was, it was as clear as the skies themselves. There was something a powerful. I wish I could even describe it better than this, but I can't. They began to see God. Verse 11, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. When it's time for God to teach, watch this, God wrote the first lesson book. He wrote the Ten Commandments. Don't miss this. He wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger in stone. This is the first time God writes in the Bible. It's not the last. The first time God writes in the Bible, he writes the Ten Commandments in stone. You see it here. The second time God writes in the Bible, we find in the book of Daniel. As Belteshazzar is having his feast. And as he's having this feast, a hand appears out of nowhere and writes on the, the plaster of the wall, meeny, meeny, tikal, ufarsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Belshazzar is so afraid, the scripture says his bowels loose on him. And that's the second time God writes. The first time God writes, he establishes his law. That's here. It is immutable. When you write something in stone, it's permanent. The second time in plaster, a judgment based on the first time he wrote. But the third time God writes, it's found in the book of John. A woman is dragged in front of Jesus and thrown down. She's naked. And the Pharisee says that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. And that the, 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 the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. Jesus, being God himself, begins to write. He writes in the sand the sins of the men accusing her. The Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to quietly slip away and take off. By the time Jesus is done, he's alone there with the woman. That's what the Bible says. It almost seems like the disciples took off too. So the first time he writes, he writes in stone. It can't be changed. The second time he writes in plaster, it was only destroyed because Babylon itself was destroyed. But the third time God writes, he writes the sins of men in the sand. And I like it because it's written just in dirt so that Jesus with just his foot could wipe his foot over the area and all those sins could be wiped away. God writes. Moses is now there to teach. Verse 17, and the sight of the glory of the Lord. I mentioned this already was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the, into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted in the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. There's multiple times in the Bible people fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is one. Elijah is one. After he's fed by the angel. And Jesus, of course, fasts 
in, for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness of temptation. Moses goes up. And what I found fascinating is one of the things I was reading this week says, God created the world in six days. Six days. And only two chapters of the Bible are given to it. But it's 40 days that Moses is in the mountain receiving instruction from God. Now watch this. And we're told in the spirit of prophecy, it takes like at least six months for the sanctuary to be built. God requires all of this wealth and, 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 and precious um, substance in order to make the sanctuary. And the statement to me is, when God created a perfect world, he did it himself, and he did it relatively quickly. But when he had to build the object that would teach the lesson of the plan of salvation, it took a lot more time. To redeem us, church, in many ways, takes more energy than it did to create us. And as we follow the sanctuary message, you'll see it. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 575 says, The great plan of redemption was revealed in the closing work of these last days. The great plan of redemption, as revealed in the closing work of these last days, should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement, which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work, with harmony, work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God, and their efforts will be successful. By study, contemplation, and prayer, God's people will be elevated above common earthly thoughts and feelings and will be brought into harmony with Christ and his great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. Their faith will go with him into the sanctuary and the worshipers on earth will be carefully reviewing their lives and comparing their characters with the great standard of righteousness. They will see their own defects. They will also see that they must have the aid of of the Spirit of God if they would become qualified for the great and solemn work for this time, which is laid upon God's ambassadors. We should be studying the sanctuary. One of my favorite books, if you hear me preach, you hear me talk about a book called A Trip into the Supernatural by Roger Murnau. Roger Murnau was a French-Canadian who had left the merchant marines after World War II in Canada and lived in Montreal and had gotten uh, pulled into demon worship. In fact, if you read the book, and I won't get too into it, he tells an amazing um, testimony of how he got um, caught up in demon worship and would go to a mansion in, uh, outside of Montreal where um, the, the, a group worshipped, literally worshipped the devil and the demons. And a demon priest would tell him all kinds of different things. Well, when the time came that he realized he didn't want to be a part of it, he was warned by his friend who helped him get into it that if he tried to leave, the demons would come and kill him. If he tried to walk away, he would be destroyed by the very demons. And they gave him all of the examples, which he could verify, of people who had weird accidents and strange things happened and the demons had snuffed them out. There were two things that helped him. 
One of them was that he was also told by the demon priest that there was one group of people who had not fallen prey to their deceptions, the devil's deceptions. And he said the devil had two great deceptions. One of them was that when you die, you don't really die. That when you die, you actually live forever. You go to heaven, you go to hell, you go to purgatory, you don't really die. And, it, and the demon priest chuckled and he laughed because so much of the world believes that lie, even in Christianity. And he said, and the second lie was the lie that the first day of the week is the day of worship that should be, uh, that should be kept sacred. And the demon priest laughed that the Sunday, remember I showed you the, the, the Egyptian gods, one of them was the main god is the sun god, Ra. So he, the demon priest laughed. One person in the audience, Roger Minot says in the book, in the back of the room raises his hands and says, what about the Adventists? They don't believe either of those things. And the demon priest laughs again and says, well, I, I forgot to mention the Adventists because there's so few of them proportionally in the world. He said, but because they keep the Sabbath, we cannot deceive them. That helped Roger Minot. Because when he wanted to leave, God put him next to Cyril Gross, who was, a, who was a, also a French Canadian, a black French Canadian, who was studying to become a Seventh-day Adventist. And the guy who owned the factory couldn't understand why it was that this, the guy who owned the factory was Jewish, he couldn't understand why there was a black man who kept the Sabbath. And so he put Roger Minot next to him to find out why does that guy keep the Sabbath? When Roger Minot heard that he was an Adventist, he realized this was his out. And he went in and got days, like, you know, over the next, like, seven days, he took, like, eight weeks' worth of Bible studies in, like, seven days because he wanted to be safe, and the demons didn't come for him. So he learned the first protective piece, the Sabbath. But there was one other piece that he learned to protect him that ties back to the sanctuary very nicely. He learned that he, if when he studied the the crucifixion of Christ, as it is outlined in, in places like Matthew chapter 27, that when he read this out loud, don't miss this church, when he read out loud the story of Christ's sacrifice, that the demons would stop. He tells incredible stories of how the demons tried to get into his apartment. You, you read the book and see, see what you think. But he, he, he was trying, that the demons were trying to get him but when he would read out loud the story of the crucifixion from the Bible, the demons would stop. It ties back to the sanctuary. You see, because the sanctuary foreshadows the cross. It, is it was for them telling them going forwards what would happen. The more they studied and learned of God in the sanctuary, the better they were prepared to face what was coming against them. And the children of Israel would have a lot come against them. There would be great spiritual warfare. But I want to submit to you that just like they had to deal with spiritual warfare, so are some of you dealing with it. And I want to tell you that what the sanctuary teaches and what we learn as we experience what Christ went through at the cross, all of that is protective. Listen, I remember... Uh, as I, when I was a kid studying what happened to Jesus at the cross with my Aunt Eva, my grandmother's sister. And when we would read those verses, she would physically weep 
and cry. And as little kids, my brother and I would look at each other and say, why is she crying, like reading in the Bible? But you know what happens to me now when I read those same verses? I cry. I understand now why she cried. Because I understand because of the sanctuary message what it cost Christ to go to the cross. You'll never fully understand it. Never fully get the, the power of its, of, of, of its ability to protect you unless you understand the sanctuary message. So why does God give instruction to build a sanctuary? Look at this. One of the things that's interesting, the word sanctuary is mentioned 132 times and tabernacle is mentioned 297 times in the Bible. God gave us the sanctuary message as it says in Exodus 25 and verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Sin separated us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and God came looking for them in the garden, what did they say? They said, we hid ourselves because we were naked. They were afraid because they were naked. Now, can you imagine all the time God and Adam and Eve had been commuting face to face? None of the, 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 the fear of the fire that the children of Israel had, they could speak to their God face to face. And all of a sudden, they, they, when they eat the fruit, all of a sudden, they, they feel naked and they feel ashamed and they run to hide. God wants to get back to that original tabernacle, the Garden of Eden. He wants to go back where he can stand with us face to face. But sin has separated us from God. And so guess what? He built a sanctuary so that he could dwell with his people in a safe manner. And that's really what it describes. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says it like this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, iniqui but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin separates us from God. And when you look at Genesis 3, there's, there's where I just, I, I just mentioned it, but there are the verses. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. From Eternity Past, page 242 says it like this. No language can describe the glory within the sanctuary. The gold-plated walls reflecting light from the golden candlestick. The table and altar of incense. We'll talk about the furniture next week. Glittering with gold beyond the second veil, the sacred ark, and above it, the holy Shekinah. The manifestation of Jehovah's presence. All were but a dim reflection of the glories of the temple of God in heaven. The great center of the work of man's redemption. In fact, the Bible commentary says this. The Hebrew word shakan, to dwell, God wants to dwell with us, means to be a permanent resident in a community. It is closely related to the word shekinah, used of the manifestation of divine glory that took up its abode above the mercy seat. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 349. The Shekinah was the symbol of the, of the divine presence in which God promised to dwell among them. Did you get that? 
God wants to dwell with you. The Shekinah glory of God comes from the same root that means to dwell. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a spoiler alert a little bit. In our third session, we'll talk about the body as the sanctuary, the body temple. Do you know that God still wants to have his Shekinah glory with you now? Except now, if it's your body, as you've heard me talk about before, it is the frontal lobe of your mind. It is the part of your brain that makes decision and reasons. This is why this week in Connecticut, uh, uh, we were surprised at work, but they legalized recreational marijuana. We didn't think it would go through, and it did. I don't know, maybe, maybe we were optimistic. And so now uh, Massachusetts has it legalized, New York has it legalized, California, Colorado. No one's asking the hard questions. I, I, I'll, I'll, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But what the devil wants is people so intoxicated that the place in your body, and we, we're going to talk about the chambers and the, and, the, and the structure of the sanctuary next week, but the place in your body which mirrors the most holy place of the sanctuary, which is your frontal lobe, the devil wants to attack it. He wants to remove from you the ability to negotiate in there. Isaiah 1 and verse 18, come and let us reason says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. That happens here. But guess what? If you're drunk and high, you can't make good decisions. The Shekinah glory can't fall. God can't dwell with you the same way. It is here that the Holy Spirit manifests itself. It is here that our character sits. This, this is where the seal of God will be placed. This is where God says he will write his name. What does God's name represent? His character. And this is why our society seems like in an all-out war against this part of the brain. Exodus 29 and verse 43 says, And there I will meet with the children of Israel. And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. That I may dwell among them. Look at the last statement. I am the Lord their God. The second reason that God built the sanctuary was for, uh, to allow his people to see his holiness. Psalm 77, 13 says, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? I've learned that God is truly a great God. I can tell you stories of times in my life when I was completely down and out. God showed up. We serve a great God. I remember falling fast asleep, driving my little lowrider back to college. My brother was in the seat next to me. I slept so well I had a full dream. Driving. My brother screamed to wake us up. We were doing donuts on the I, I think that, that's the I-65 going up from Birmingham to Huntsville, spinning on the highway. And when we finally stopped, we landed backwards, 
down in a, a, a in the in the ravine between the two sides of the highway. And as soon as we stopped, eighteen wheelers just started flying past us. We had to, we couldn't even get the car. We had, my brother had to get out and push us out of the mess that I got us into. You see, when I start to doubt God, I think that maybe God isn't there. I have to remember. You see what, 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 he, what David says here? Who is so great a God as our God? When we get to heaven, our guardian angel is going to sit with us and show us all the times we were supposed to be wiped out. All the times the devil had the trap set to kill us. All the times that he had, he had you saw the, 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 the building collapse in Miami this week. All the times we were supposed to be somewhere where destruction was supposed to happen. You serve a great God. And he has preserved you for a purpose, just as he preserved Israel for a purpose. Leviticus 9, 23 says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. This is after it was built. Look at what it says in verse 24. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The Egyptian gods didn't do things like this. They'd never seen anything like it. And they were so impressed. It was so powerful. The children of Israel began to understand. Skip the slide. But then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who we talked about going up, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I found this fascinating. We were talking about alcohol and marijuana. Watch this. Christian Temperance and Bible Hygiene, page 28. Nadab and Abihu were men in holy office. But by the use of wine, their minds became so clouded that they could not distinguish between sacred and common things. By the offering of strange fire, they disregarded God's command and were slain by his judgments. The last thing I want to point out about the building of the sanctuary before we get into its furniture and its rituals and so forth next week that the, the, the sanctuary was built to so that we would understand the weight of sin and its cost. Hebrews 9 says this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, it took blood. When, even when Adam and Eve were found to be um, hiding and they had made for themselves aprons of leaves, what did God do? He gave them a coat of animal skin. At the first sin, something had to die. The wages of sin is what? It's death. Sin separates you from God. If sin separates you from God and God is the source of life, by default, sin is deadly. 
But look at this. Leviticus 4 and verse 33 says, And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering. This is in the sanctuary. And slay it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. In the daily sacrifice, if someone sinned, they had to take a spotless animal, a spotless lamb, and they would lay their hand on the animal and confess their sin, transferring their sin from themselves to that lamb. And then they had to take that innocent lamb and kill it. Every time that happened, you understood how, how, how the weight, the cost of sin. Every time they had to bring in a precious, spotless, innocent animal who had done nothing wrong and, and sacrifice it to pay for their sin. But I can tell you, as a Christian, it goes even deeper. Because here's where the sanctuary gets powerful. It foreshadows John 1 and verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which does what? Which takes away the sin of the world. That innocent lamb that was brought into the sanctuary in the days of Moses, and that person had to lay his hand on it and then kill that lamb. When John the Baptist sees him, type meets antitype. And when Jesus walks up, walks up and John sees him, John understands that the fulfillment of all that the sanctuary meant was walking bodily in Jesus Christ. He is the lamb slain from what? The foundation of the world. Hebrews 9.23 says it like this, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. In other words, the, 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 the foreshadowing. But he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. Jesus doesn't have to keep going to Calvary every year. The scripture says in verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, Jesus went to Calvary once, and that ended, as we'll talk about later, it ended the whole system that they had in those ancient days because he paid everything that needed to be paid for our salvation. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Let me tell you something. The sanctuary doesn't just point back to the cross. It points forward to Jesus' soon coming. The lamb that was slain on Calvary's tree is coming back. Except this time, he's not coming back as the one that was beaten and, and vanquished. He's coming back as the victor, riding on a white horse. Last couple of slides, the General Conference Daily Bulletin, January 28, 1893 says, the only way in which men, and only way in which men will, will be enabled to stand firm in the conflict is to be rooted and grounded in Christ. 
They must receive the truth as it is in Jesus. And it is only as the truth is presented thus that it can meet the wants of the soul. The preaching of Christ crucified, Christ our righteousness, is what satisfies the soul's hunger. Only Christianity, church, preaches and teaches that you don't save yourself. Did you know that? Every other religion, if you do what's supposed to be done, if you, if, you, if you work hard enough, you can make it to nirvana or paradise or wherever. Christianity says your righteousness is as filthy rags. You must be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, when we secure the interest of the people in this great central truth, faith and hope and courage come to the heart. If God has given his son to die for sinners, he means to counteract sin. He has made the great gift because of his love for sinful, fallen men. We must make it plain that he is willing and able to save all that come unto him and believe in him as their personal savior. Present this again and again until the mind can take it in. Let every teacher put his whole heart, his whole mind and soul into this work, lifting up Jesus and bidding the people look and live. Let the sinner fix his eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As he looks to Christ, he will feel the power of God. He must not devote, look at this church, he must not devote the precious time to deploring his sinfulness, looking upon the wounds and bruises he has received in the, certain, in the service of Satan. And this is where many Christians fail. We spend all our time running the tapes in our minds of all the ways we messed up in the past. We live in a constant a rewind of shame, of self-hate, of guilt and remorse. We spend all our energy wishing we had a time machine to travel back and fix our lives. But we are told here by the inspired pen, don't do that. Take your energy and focus on Christ. When you want to give up a sin, what a lot of folk do is they want to grit their teeth and work harder and get over this addiction or this habit. I want to submit to you that if you take your energy and focus on Jesus, he, and, and just in getting to know him, the, the, the sins of this world that so easily beset us will become light and fall off. The old hymn says it like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What are you struggling with today? The sanctuary message tells us that there's a lamb. That when you put your hand on him and you confess your sins, He's already taken your sin and dealt with it. That's why the Bible says God will remember your sin no more. One of the interesting things in this study is, as I was studying this, is that there's a difference between your sins being forgiven and them being blotted out. God doesn't just forgive your sin. He blots it out. When you stand before God in judgment, which is one of the key components of the sanctuary message, when you stand before God in judgment, guess what? As a Christian, your sin will be blotted out. 
like a movie playing in front of the universe. Every life will come up and everyone will be able to see. But when it comes to Eric Walsh's life, all the mess and dirt I've done, all the times I've failed God, rather than the world see it, when that comes up in my life, the screen will just go blood red. Covered by the blood of Jesus. So why spend your time in remorse and regret? Spend your time learning, studying, and knowing Christ, the lamb that was slain. By faith, carry the mind up within the veil to view Christ as our intercessor before the mercy seat. Let the sinner behold Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and his soul will be open to receive the truth as it is in Jesus. In Revelation 5. 12 and 13, just to give you an idea of this lamb, saying with a loud voice, because this is what we should be doing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I sing, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. The sanctuary was designed with your eternity in mind. I'll close with an interesting story I read this week. True story. It was a father who was quite well off. His son was graduating from high school, about to go to college. The son realized that his father had the means, and so... He went into his dad and said, listen, for my graduation present, dad, I want a sports car. And he told him exactly which dealership had the sports car and what model it was. He said, what color he wanted, everything. That's what I want for graduation, dad. His father smiled and said, okay, noted. The young man went off, graduation happened, and after the ceremonies, his father called him into his office at home to give him his graduation gift. The son came in and sat in his father's office, and the father handed him a beautifully wrapped box. The son was a little confused. A car can't fit in a box. He took the box, and he opened it, and when he pulled the box apart and the papers fell away, it was a brand-new Bible. The boy was so angry, he took the Bible and slammed it down on his father's desk. I told you I wanted a car, and I, and I know you could have afforded to give me the car I wanted. And the, fun, the son, in, in disgust, walks off. He leaves a few weeks later, goes to college, and never really is close to his father again. He graduates from college and does well for himself, actually becomes quite wealthy himself. Years later, when he has kids, he realizes he's not spent any time with his father. His kids don't know his father, so he plans and arranges to go back and visit his father so his kids can meet their grandfather. And as he's planning to go, word comes to him that his father was sick and died. True story. And they said, you need to get here quickly to gather his belongings. The son rushed back to his hometown that he hadn't been to for years. And as he's going through his father's things and figuring out what he to do with them, 
he stumbles upon that Bible. Still in the box. Still looks brand new. Tears begin to stream down his face as he now realizes his father only wanted what was best for him. Had he read that Bible, how many mistakes might he not have made? How many people might he not have hurt? He picks up the Bible and starts thumbing through it. When he gets to one part in the Bible, there's something lodged in there. And a key falls out with the address and the card for the dealership where he wanted that sports car. And the verse of scripture that it was in said, If you who are wicked know to give good deeds to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know to do good for you? Let me tell you something, church. A lot of us are like that son. We are demanding things, expecting things. But we don't realize Wrapped up in the word of God is everything we've always wanted. Everything. Because this world cannot fill the void that is in each of our hearts. This world can't make sense of death. It can't make sense of, 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 of pain and of suffering. This world can't do it. As we study the sanctuary, you begin to understand the great controversy more clearly and you understand what Christ did for you and you realize you are loved. And the question today is, like that son, will you turn your back on what God is offering you? So much better than the keys to a sports car. He's offering you the keys to a kingdom, to a mansion. But right now, he's asking that we stay faithful and that we get to know him. We need to know the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for designing the sanctuary. For having it built, and then even having it built as a temple under Solomon and Nehemiah, so that we could learn the lessons that it teaches. Father God, the sanctuary had to be built because we fell into sin. Because we fell away from you. And Lord, your way is in the sanctuary. So Lord, as the, over the next two weeks as we study the sanctuary in more detail, I pray for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we'd get an understanding of this truth that changes us and draws us closer to the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.